I found there was really only one thing that all researchers agreed on. And I love it because it's not that appealing. Caloric restriction. Eat less. Hello again and welcome to Llama, the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. My name is Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. This episode is brought to you in association with Clinique La Prairie, the award-winning spa clinic and pioneering health and wellness destination nestled on the shores of Lake Geneva in Montreux, Switzerland. Combining preventative medicine with bespoke lifestyle and nutrition plans, Clinique La Prairie offers a holistic approach to living fuller, healthier, and longer lives. Now, there are many pillars to human longevity, diet, exercise, stress management, perhaps a supplement regime, social contacts, family, friends, mindfulness, meditation, the list goes on. The things we often discuss that could help us along the way towards a long health span. Around the world, many people achieve a great health span without giving a second thought to any of the above. They just live their lives and Longevity happens. There is much we can learn from the lifestyles of the healthiest and oldest people on this planet. My guest today is Daniel Kennedy. Daniel is a filmmaker and author and director of the documentary series Healthy Long Life. It's an Amazon Prime series that explores longevity and healthy living secrets around the world. Much of the focus is on food and ancient healing traditions and it is a fascinating watch. Daniel, welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Well, Peter, I'm so glad to be here with you today, and thank you so much for the opportunity to share maybe some behind-the-scenes or some added value information that we picked up in the four years of filming Healthy Long Life. That's how long it took you. I was thinking, having made a few documentaries myself, what an extraordinary amount of work. This is a global documentary. What an extraordinary amount that you put into it. Yeah, we, we we filmed in 13 different countries and, you know, there's so much uh, uh, pre-production and then post-production uh, and, you know, you can binge watch the whole thing in under five hours uh, and you don't imagine, when you're watching documentaries, you don't imagine uh, just all that goes into making it. But we had a motivation and that motivation was to help people not only live longer, but to be well in those added years. Uh, you know, in the United States, the life expectancy is almost at uh, 80 years. But the years that people live uh, in good health is only about 69 years, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So that means that we have, uh, at, at birth, we're already looking forward to at least 10 years a very poor health. And I don't really like that idea, especially when I think about my children and my future uh, grandchildren. And, and a concern that I had that I think many people have is, are, are you know, chronic diseases, are they predetermined? Is, is it fate depending on the genes that we inherit? And so we went out to search for answers to those questions. How can we live longer, but also in good health? And 
Is there anything we can really do about it or is it just genetics? And the point you make about the final maybe 10 years of our lives not necessarily being the best, far from it, but for a lot of people it can be in very ill health. That's why we talk about health span. It's just optimising those years that we have with the best of health when we can enjoy physical activity, we can enjoy social contacts, we can enjoy travelling and minimise those years of, of decline at the end. So I think you and I are probably on the same wavelength with that. I think we really are. And, and if I just put in one modifier, I'd say healthy lifespan, uh, because lifespan could be the whole time you're living. But what about those healthy years? And where this topic started to get really important to me was watching my best friend age. And my best friend was my father, David Kennedy. And I saw that, you know, uh, once he got well into his 70s, his social calendar was no longer filled with fun activities, but it was filled with a who's who of doctor's appointments. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, wow, dad, you have a lot of important friends. They're all doctors. Well, no, I'm going to seven different specialists because my dad had three types of cancer, survived them all, finally passed away from congestive heart failure. So you can imagine the different types of specialists that he had to see constantly. So Daniel, just before we delve further into that, just tell me a little bit about yourself. I, I describe you as, as a filmmaker, as an author. You also work in healthcare, don't you? Well, if we really want to start begin my career, I was a scuba dive instructor <laughs> Uh, fresh out of San Diego State University. I got my degree in economics and as a scuba instructor, and I went right to work in the scuba industry as an instructor uh, and a salesperson for scuba equipment. And I was uh, traveling the world, all expenses paid, to go on liveaboards uh, in Australia to scuba dive for 10 days and then go go back home and sell those trips. Uh, but my uncle, who is an oncologist would come and visit me and, and say, Daniel, I, I love your scuba enthusiasm, but I think you were meant for more. And finally, I, I agreed to go to work with him at Oasis of Hope Hospital, which is right across the border from Tijuana, uh, or from San Diego in Tijuana. And that hospital was founded by my grandfather in 1963 with the vision of caring for the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. So I'm in my 28th year uh, working in that mission, and really that had so much to do to inspire me to make healthy long life because I'm also I have a master's in counseling, so I I give counseling to patients and their family members, and what I've seen, you know, in thousands of cases uh, that I've personally interacted with is this deep desire of the person who has cancer to help their loved ones not get cancer. And so Healthy Long Life uh, is very cancer-preventive-centric uh, uh, as well. And, uh, you know, that's my motivation. How can I help people not get cancer? And that's in response to all of my family members that had cancer and all of my patients that just said, Daniel, we need to help people prevent cancer. So when you set about, when you first thought of the, the idea of this documentary, this, this huge project, how did you decide where to go? Because I think we all know and understand there are pockets of populations around the world that do exhibit extraordinary 
longevity and uh, a well worth learning from. But it must have been a, a gigantic task for you just to try to focus on those specific places. So I had three inspirations, uh, and they all kind of came together while I was at a conference called the International Plant-Based Healthcare Conference put on by the same people that um, have the Plantrician Project. What a word, right? Plantrician. Uh, physicians who use plants as medicine. Uh, and so I was influenced by them because they had incredible speakers like uh, Dr. T. Colin Campbell and Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, Dr. Michael Clapper, Dr. Michael Greger, uh, all of these people that I had seen on Forks Over Knives. But now I was getting at the conference to meet these people and start uh, a relationship. And so that influenced me heavily. I, I thought, wow, the experts are all here and I can learn from them. And then the uh, National Geographic article that, that came out about blue zones and reading the book about blue zones and seeing all the great work that Dan Butner and his uh, people have done, uh, you know, that really affected of where I thought I'd go uh, film. Uh, and I did not make it to, to most of the blue zones, but I made it to Sardinia and just other longevity capitals of the world. For example, uh, Dan Butner has named Okinawa as a blue zone. I didn't make it there. I filmed throughout Japan, but on our way to Okinawa, a typhoon came through and we literally had to, to uh, reschedule other cities. And we were running away from the typhoon as we were filming. We would be like one day ahead of where the typhoon's path was. So, you know, lots of uh, uh, adventures on the filming. But the third influence was ancient medicine. What could we learn from ancient healing traditions that could help us overcome what modern medicine is not overcoming? Modern medicine is a model that fights disease, and it has its place. If you have an acute infection, chances are pharmaceuticals will fight back that disease. But modern medicine does not promote health. And I, that's one thing that I found throughout this filming process was that distinction. Those are two different things, fighting illness or promoting health. Uh, and if you can do both at the same time, I think that's really key to living a healthy, long life. And that's what led us to film in China and in India. Uh, Mexico was, was so wonderful to film near the pyramids in Chichen Itza and speak to these Mayan healers that continue to use medicinal plants as, you know, have been used for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, I think that's a, a good point you make about essentially we live in a, a disease care world as opposed to a preventative medicine world, which is uh, would be the ideal if we could move towards that. You mentioned T. Colin Campbell, and he is one of the first people we see, one of the first interviewees that we see in your series. And uh, such a, a huge a giant of a, a figure in terms of uh, his seminal work, which was the, the China yes. study. Why was it, I mean, it's clear why it was crucially important and very fortuitous that you got to meet him, as you, as you mentioned. But just uh, for maybe people who are not that familiar with his work, why was it so important to include him? Well, T. Colin Campbell, I, I think, in this generation would be the person that's the, the most studied in the field of di disease prevention and health promotion. 
Uh, and he started out at Cornell University uh, really studying the benefits of dairy products. Uh, he had come from a dairy farming background, but the more he studied it, the more he found uh, how dairy is so detrimental. So he started to look for food groups that would actually improve our health. And I would say that he is like the, the godfather or the grandfather of plant-based uh, medicine. And no one uh, has done any study that lasted as long, over 20 years, with so many people uh, in, in so many towns at the same time as the famous uh, China study. And the fact that Dr. Campbell did that in cooperation with the Chinese uh, academic uh, science um, institution and with Oxford at the same time, there were plenty of eyes on to assure the integrity of the study. And his conclusions uh, are probably some of the most quoted as far as uh, a plant-based diet. You know, I don't think this one question made it onto the documentary, but I asked him while I was interviewing him, you know, Dr. Campbell, are you telling me that you have to be plant-based? They don't like to use the word vegetarian or vegan because they say French fries are both vegetarian and vegan. So they use plant-based. But I think French fries are still plant-based, but you get the picture. Yeah. Not all plant foods. It depends on how you cook them are healthy. Right. But I asked Dr. Campbell, do you have to be plant-based? Is that what you're saying? To not get cancer. And I loved his answer as a pure scientist. He said, Daniel, the data suggest that the closer you are to being plant-based, the lower your risk for cancer will be. I loved it. He didn't say yes or no. He, he gave me the information for me to make an informed decision about my lifestyle. And that was a cue for the rest of healthy long life. I don't edit anything out. If, if a person says, I love eating meat, so be it. It's in the documentary. I decided not to use the documentary series to preach my point of view, but to tell you, share the real stories, uh, hear the researchers, look at the data, and let people make their own decisions. Because if you make your informed decision, you'll follow through on it versus just somebody trying to sell you an idea. From my perspective, a documentary that starts out with a preconceived idea that you set out to prove no matter what isn't a, a genuine documentary. You've got to hear all sides and present all sides. And I think uh, perhaps what T. Colin Campbell was saying there was uh, that life isn't black and white. There's, it's a shade of grey in, in terms of our opinions and, and in terms of the, the truth of the science as well. And as you implied, there are plenty of populations that you will have experienced around the world that do include meat in their diet, and they are still healthy. It just adds to the, the complicated nature of what we're dealing with. That's so true. Uh, but what we tend to find is in uh, cultures where some meat is eaten, uh, but they're still healthy, uh, they tend to be the cultures where people are growing their own livestock, uh, and they're not killing the animal very often, but saving it for you know, special events or maybe, you know, just Sunday family um, meal only. So their quantity is much less, but also 
they're not processed in, in, you know, just growing like thousands and thousands of animals and toxic situations and the meat packing and all that. They're their own animals that they birthed, uh, you know, and, and f- hand fed and took care of. Uh, before they partook. So it's like they had the, the understanding and the value, you know, they give thanks for the life that was given. It's not just taken for granted in this packaged, uh, meat. So there, and there, and I think because of that, their quantities are smaller. For example, in Sardinia, uh, I saw they were eating cheese. I mean, it's Italy. I couldn't imagine in Italy without cheese. Uh, but I also saw, that they had their own goats, they went out, they milked the goat, and they made the cheese that they served that day. So the freshness was incredible, but also they couldn't overeat the cheese because they had to milk the goat and make it themselves. And so I was picking up on that I couldn't preach a plant-based only diet for health because I saw some civilizations still eating some meat product, but they grew it themselves. They worked hard for it. And the quantities were tiny little garnishes compared with what we see in uh, the United States where, you know, the meat fills the whole plate and there's a little piece of parsley as your vegetable. You uh, talk about people, communities giving thanks for the for the food that they are eating, which I think is perhaps a, a nod to the spiritual nature of uh, many of the people and the communities that you came across. Now, I'm just curious: to what extent did you see this as a as a spiritual journey around the world, maybe a religious journey to, for some people, as opposed to a scientific journal journey, looking at the the issues that can perhaps be proven in a test tube. If I would uh, was speaking to the researchers, uh, like the the researcher I spoke with at Max Planck, it was all about the science, and it was all about their uh, studies, and they they use a lot of studies with flies and such, which is really fascinating to to not just read an article uh, written by a person, but to actually go into where they were doing the studies. But if I was speaking to the people living in that area, uh, it quickly became more about a spiritual journey than the, the science. The beautiful thing is that science and spirituality uh, do not they're not exclusive they're inclusive you can always find the science behind the spiritual uh, experience and so depending on what country we were in we would see you know the expression tied to a specific religion uh, but what I did find was that every single religion that I I interview people that participate in those religions. Food was one of the most important aspects of that religion. So when I was in Israel, uh, speaking with a researcher uh, who was on the original team that was cataloging the Dead Sea Scrolls, she started on that right when they were discovered in 1948 at Haifa University, she went through the whole process of the community, how they would eat together, what they would eat and what they would not eat, what was pure, what was unpure. Then I was in uh, Mexico, you know, near Chichen Itza in Yucatan, and the uh, Mayan healer said that, well, the medicinal plants 
do not have their medicinal power until we pray over it and bless it. And it's the spiritual energy that enters into the plants that make them healing. Uh, so, you know, what a contrast from the ancient uh, uh, Judaism and their thoughts and then the Mayan beliefs, yet how similar. Uh, and then we were able to be in Kyoto, Japan, uh, with a Buddhist priest showing all of the preparation and the Buddhist beliefs of how to nourish the body and how the food also would nourish the soul. So from a Buddhist perspective, then we were in India and got all of the Ayurvedic teaching uh, more from the Hindu point of view, but also we spoke with, uh, there is, you know, big, groups of Muslims as well, and they have slight differences on what's permitted to eat and what's not. But wow, food and faith absolutely go hand in hand. And I think what's interesting to me is is often it is the, the lifestyle of the faith. And I, I'm thinking of the Seventh-day Adventist community uh, close to Los Angeles in Loma Linda. It's not necessarily the religion and the belief in God. It is simply the daily lifestyle that encourages and, and almost dictates longevity because it involves a lot of movement. It involves a lot of social contact, uh, which you could describe in another way. You could say that's mindfulness. That's people just letting go a little bit. And I think all of those components together all add up to a potentially long life. Yeah, that's so true. Loma Linda is uh, another one of the zones that Dan Butner identified as a blue zone. And we did go to Loma Linda, and you'll see throughout our documentary series interviews with Dr. Hans Steele of the Lifestyle Institute, um, which is, you know, based in Loma Linda, and they're using Seventh-day Adventist uh, nutrition. Uh, I did just read a, a study um, recently published that talked about how um, even Christians can have a higher quality of life because of their Christian convictions. And so you're thinking, well, okay, how does that work? Uh, because they're praying to the God that actually heals or what? And they said, well, no, because in their um, core beliefs, they don't approve of being intoxicated. Well, we know that uh, drink over drinking is uh, tied to one of the causes of cancers. Uh, Christians tend not to believe in smoking. You know, they point to the scripture that says your body is a temple. So why would you pollute the temple, uh, you know, with smoke? Um, Christians tend to believe that fellowship is important. There's a, a verse in First Thessalonians that say, don't stop meeting together, you know, so that social support. And this article went down and, and looked at all of these lifestyles, uh, habits that are associated with Christianity, and then they found the science behind how that would actually uh, promote health. And I can tell you, um, from speaking with these other uh, practitioners of other religions, it's very, very similar. Uh, you know, it, not only do uh, Jewish people say no pork, but Muslims also don't eat pork. Uh, so I find it very, very interesting for a modern day uh, study to confirm if you're practicing a religion, it probably is bringing you more toward healthy lifestyles. You know, even uh, in sexual behavior, 
religious people tend uh, to not promote multiple sexual partners, uh, but they're more promoting monogamy. And so that lowers your risk to exposure uh, to sexually transmitted diseases. So I, I found that very fascinating. And I think it comes out in Healthy Long Life in the different episodes of the series uh, without being preachy. I, I don't think that the documentary really, you know, preaches. I don't think your documentary is preachy at all, but there is one thing that, uh, having watched all of them, one thing that really came through to me and made me think a lot, and, and I jotted down the phrase, genetics may load the gun, but it's the environment. And it, this is the, the very sort of modern-day debate in the longevity community in terms of delving into the science and especially genetics and how much weight we should put on genetics and our genomes and how we are made as opposed to the world that we are living and the outside forces that influence how our lives progress. And it's a fascinating dichotomy, isn't it? Yes. Uh, Dr. Michael Greger, the author of How Not to Die, is the person who says that genetics may load the gun, but it's diet and lifestyle that pull the trigger. Uh, I mean, what a powerful statement. But throughout the series, we hear other experts giving us some data uh, speaking to that, Dr. Delia Garcia, who's an oncologist that works exclusively with women who have breast cancer, uh, she told me her story that she is an oncologist, but she stopped treating patients with chemotherapy and radiation. She's not against that, but she said, you go to a clinical oncologist for that, but you come to me because I only do lifestyle medicine. And she brought out that women who have breast cancer, when they study it, only 5% of all women with breast cancer either have the BRCA1, which is the breast cancer mutated gene, or BRCA2 gene. 95% of the women that have breast cancer don't have the uh, cancer gene, breast cancer gene. Though if you do have the breast cancer gene, your probability of cancer goes high, but lifestyle can absolutely override it. My uncle, the oncologist at Oasis of Hope Hospital, Dr. Francisco Contreras, pointed out that if you look at all cancer types, less than 10% of people with any type of cancer actually have a cancer-associated or mutated gene. And I decided to verify that, and I found that on uh, American Cancer Society's website, and they get all of their data, well, mostly from the National Cancer Institute or the National Institute of Health in the United States. So I found that fascinating. You do focus on food in all of the countries that you visit and all of the communities. Not a huge amount of talk about exercise. I mean, there, there, are, there is some. But I'm wondering in terms of the balance, because we often talk about food and exercise as being two of the, the key pillars to help us live a, a long and, and healthy life. Where do you, based on what you've learned over the years, where do you put the emphasis? I put it on food uh, 100%. You can sit and, and be rather sedentary, but if you're eating the right foods, you will not gain weight. Your blood pressure won't go up. Exercise is an incredible plus, uh, you know, but when I was in Sardinia, I was, you know, talking to men in their 90s that were still working full time. None of them had a gym uh, uh, membership. 
None of them exercise. If you ask them, do you exercise, they would laugh. But you know what? They were out working those fields at six in the morning. They were taking their uh, herds up to grazing areas and they would walk uh, two to three miles each way to take them in the morning. And then another five to six, you know, round trip in the evening to bring them back. So when your lifestyle is, you know, more traditional and natural, you don't need to exercise because you're up and active all day long. And I, I would preach more about being active. Uh, and so if you have a desk job, you, you probably have to go exercise because you're not active. Now, my, my emphasis is on the food because exercise is incredible for toning your muscles, you know, for keeping your body strong and for the detox of it and for feeling better, your emotional health with the release of endorphins. But it's really food that is turning your genes on and off. And that's why it's so much more powerful. Exercise, there's not studies talking about how it's upregulating or downregulating genes that are associated with disease. It really is food. And to quote Dr. Michael Clapper, who says this in Healthy Long Life, it's the food, it's the food, it's the food. And he says, when you eat a mouthful already, the nutrients in the food you've just taken into your body are playing your genes like a piano. And it is interesting what you were saying also about just everyday exercise and, and movement. And that comes right back to the Loma Linda lifestyle and the Seventh-day Adventist community there. Yes. There is actually a fantastic gym in the center of Loma Linda, which I've been to, the university gym there. But a lot of the centenarians in that town, many of whom I, I've met, uh, haven't stepped inside that gym or any gym but they do their own yard work until you know, they're at an extreme age and they do their own dishes and they live that kind of old-fashioned lifestyle and they're living long lives. Yes, and they're not sunbathing and overexposing to the sun. They're right. fully clothed, but they're getting fresh air and the sunlight so needed for vitamin D and, and other reasons in a healthy way. Uh, but yeah, they... Why would I go to a gym? I'm working in my garden or my farm, you know, hours and hours in the day. So, but I am not against exercise and gyms and such. Uh, but if you can just be active, I think it'd be way better to go for a bicycle ride or go kick the football around and be active and have fun than just to get on a treadmill. You mentioned alcohol earlier, and I think we all know and understand and can agree that too much alcohol is not good for us. They drink quite a lot of alcohol, red wine in France. You delve into the French yes. paradox, which is the, I suppose, the paradox, the fact that a lot of cheese and red wine is consumed in French restaurants, and it's a generally pretty healthy community. Why is that? Yeah, so I asked a number of experts about the French paradox, and um, wow, I was so excited to actually be at the World Health Organization in Geneva, Switzerland, with the director of nutrition for the for the whole world, you know, uh, Dr. Francesco Branca. And he said, well, there there's no data that confirms there is a French paradox, uh, but there is plenty of data that suggests 
that there are some um, polyphenols or flavonoids in red wine that help combat the high fat diet in France, uh, you know, because while well, we all know that in French food, the, the three most important ingredients are butter, butter, and butter. So it's, it's rather high fat. Um, but when I spoke to the uh, professor of nutrition at Sorbonne University in Paris, France, Professor uh, Clement, uh, she also said, well, I'm not so sure about the French paradox, but there's something that's being overlooked when we look at the French diet, we're just looking at the food, but we should be looking at how we eat, when we eat, and with whom we eat. And she brought that out, that in France, they still do like a two-hour uh, meal. And she said it's all about uh, disconnecting from work. And she said if somebody brings up a topic of work at lunch – we won't go out with them again. We only invite people that will enjoy a meal and they're eating very, very slowly, not huge quantities, but they take the whole two hours to have their meal. They're disconnected from stress. Uh, and so they're having a conversation and getting that social support. So she was talking a lot more about how food can be a part of stress management and social connection. And I found that to be fascinating as, you know, I'm the typical American that will have my iPad open, my phone, my computer, and I'm shoveling in the meal at my desk while trying to finish writing an article. Uh, and I see that's something I need to change in my life. That is something that I'm guilty of as well. And uh, you've kind of preempted my one of my final questions, which is going to be, based on your four years experience doing this and meeting these different communities, what have you learned that you might well be applying to your own lifestyle now? What have you seen in terms of these ancient traditions or wisdom from centenarians from Italy or from Paris that you think that is so convincing? I want to live a long, healthy life myself. I should do it now. Well, as I spoke to experts from uh, Cancer Research UK to the University of Beijing to the University of Delhi in India, uh, or I spoke to a professor in Shizuoka the, in Japan, what I found was that they all have some data that may suggest uh, differentiations on what we should be eating. And I found there was really only one thing that all researchers agreed on. And I love it because it's not that appealing. Caloric restriction, eat less. Uh, and so that's challenging uh, in the United States because, you know, you're always asked at the drive-thru, would you like to up size that or, you know, make it bigger? I think the answer to that is don't go to the drive-thru. Exactly. Uh, Louis Anderson, the comedian, once said something on one of his specials probably 25 years ago that I'll never forget. Uh, and he said, I went into 7-Eleven for a Slurpee and, you know, had my 20-ounce cup. And uh, as I was ready to check out, I said, would you like to upgrade that to the 50-gallon drum? 
And he said, well, how much more is that? He says, a nickel. <laughs> Five cents more to go to a 50 gallon. He says, so there I am, you know, walking with my 50 gallon Slurpee. The whole thing in the diet is geared to eat more, eat more, eat more, and we're just going to charge you cents more. But the reality is uh, God already gave us a tool to know how much we should eat, and that's how much should fit in your two hands, and that's the full meal. So the caloric restriction uh, is really important. How does that influence me in a practical way? I tend to be more plant-based because I can guarantee you that a cup of kale has hardly any calories versus to, uh, you know, a, a cup of some donuts, per se. That's an easy calculation to make as well. <laughs> I, I would maybe add to what you say in terms of just reducing the amount of food caloric restriction. Add to that when we eat, and the and you've touched on this, and the circumstances under which we eat. And there's a lot of good science going on at the Salk Institute uh, here in California about time-restricted eating and, and not eating late into the evening and perhaps reducing the number of meals or at least eat between a certain time in the morning and then stop eating at dinner time, which is usually about 6 p.m. For, for most people. I think there's a lot of validity there. Uh, there is, and I'll just tell you, and this is just my experience with zero data, right? This is a testimony of one person. Uh, I eat my meals between 12 and 6. Uh, and so I don't eat the breakfast, which they've drilled into our heads as the most important you know, meal of the day. Well, maybe so. I break fast at 12 noon. And here's my testimony. Uh, I used to have, you know, like a reflux kind of thing, uh, but just restricting when I'm eating. And also I found that any kind of grain product tended to really give me indigestion. And so I don't eat a lot of grains anymore. And I sleep very, very well and never have any uh, reflux unless I just give in. And every once in a while I do, and I don't shame myself. Hey, if I'm in France, I will absolutely have a croissant in the morning with coffee, and I will probably feel it for a couple of hours. And just concluding, again, you've met all these extraordinary people around the world. What are your own personal longevity aspirations? Do you think about your life in the decades to come? And do you have a, do you have a goal? Do you maybe even have a, a number that you're aiming for? Uh, yes. Well, I just want to be healthy, but I'm, I don't think I'm wanting to live a hundred years unless that comes with uh, really good health. But my motivation to keep healthy, I kind of have a few personal goals. One is I want to be medication free my whole life. So right now I'm 53 years old and I'm not taking any medications. And I do blood work about every six months just as a way to keep myself motivated to make sure that all the markers that you would look at are saying that I'm keeping in good health. And my motivation is I really want to be here for grandkids and I want them to remember uh, grandfather playing with them in the park. Uh, but I also want to make a contribution, an area that I'm focusing in. I'm, I'm doing my doctorate in social work at USC right now. And my whole focus is the health gap. And the governments are always politicizing health and trying to do these different programs. 
But what I want to do is start a nonprofit fund that will educate uh, marginalized groups on self-care and how they can be health-promoting and not need so much access to the healthcare system, which is only illness fighting, not health promoting. And so for me to, to accomplish that and help people on a large scale, it starts with me being healthy. A person who's really ill can't make as good of contribution to help somebody else. Um, so health is paramount. Everything, if you get really sick, you have a heart attack or you're diagnosed with cancer, everything else in life is put on hold. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hoping that healthy long life can help people, you know, really become uh, productive in their lives. Very wise words. Daniel, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thoroughly enjoyed the documentary. Thank you for spending time with us. Appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. And um, I'm assuming that you'll let people know how to, to find us. That's exactly what I was just going to go on to say, that if you want to find out more about Daniel's work and his documentary, which I, I would recommend, uh, I'll put the details, all of the details, into uh, the show notes for this episode, and you'll find them at our website, the Live Long and Master Aging website, lamapodcast.com, double L-A-M-A podcast.com. And since you're still with us, Daniel, you tell us as well if you want to go directly to the documentary. I, I guess around the world, there are different ways to watch it. Well, there are. Um, so if you would just go to my website, healthylonglife.com, I put a couple of buttons that are easy to connect you to Amazon Prime uh, and to resources that we're offering, some of them for free, including our cooking app, which is available around the world for iOS and Android, also called Healthy Long Life. So please go to my website, healthylonglife.com, uh, and if you're in a country uh, that is predominantly English-speaking, Amazon Prime has the documentary available to you. If you're in another country, even like Mexico, where I spend half of my life, it's not available uh, that way. Uh, but if you have an Apple TV box in your house, you can go to the app section and find Healthy Long Life and download it and, and watch it that way. Lots of ways to find you. <laughs> Daniel, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. What an honor to be on your program, and, and I really appreciate the work that you're doing. And likewise, and uh, I think people will draw a lot of inspiration from what you've done. It, it's well worth watching, and the, the beauty of Amazon Prime, of course, is you can go back and you can watch it again if uh, you don't absorb it all first time. And I think it's one of those productions, isn't it? You sometimes need to watch these things a few times to really fully appreciate what people are saying. Yes. Daniel, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. The Llama Podcast is a Healthspan Media production. If you enjoy what we do, you can rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. You can follow us in social media at Llama Podcast and direct message me at Peter Bowes. Do take care. Many thanks for listening.